Hi everyone, and welcome to episode 49 of DisasterCast, a podcast about scary things and how to stop them happening. My name is Drew Ray. Today, boys and girls, we're going to talk about sandcastles. No, seriously, stop that. Sandcastles. Quite reasonable topic to talk about on a safety podcast. Plenty of people, when they go to the beach, have got really skewed risk perception. They worry about things like sharks. Just for the record, most sharks aren't going to hurt you, and the ones that might are nowhere nearby. Other people have quite reasonable concern about personal protection against sunburn. That's understandable and appropriate. But what everyone forgets about is product safety in the design of silicon grain engineering structures. It's the collapsing sandcastles on the beach that are really going to bring the tears. Now, this is going to make more sense to those of us who come from countries where going to the seaside means golden beaches rather than boardwalks and arcades. So let me give you a quick overview for the rest of you. Sandcastles are complex engineering structures. One of the challenges is to make them as big as possible. Tricky because there are no interlocking pieces and they tend to collapse under their own weight. Another challenge is to try to make interesting shapes, particularly realistic castle shapes. Again tricky because, like pyramids, sand structures are only self-sustaining with sides below certain angles. My own favourite game as a child was trying to fight the forces of nature with a sandcastle. To make a castle that could withstand the sun, wind and rising tide. The game was to make it put on the beach and come back later and find that the sandcastle was still there. This was complicated because one of my friends preferred to make siege tunnels and moats, but I digress. The strength of a sandcastle comes from a mixture of coarse granules, fine granules and water. If the sand is damp but not too damp, it sticks together more and you can build castles with steeper walls. The other side of the coin is if the sand gets wetter or drier, it can't sustain those steep walls and the sandcastle will collapse. So no matter how well you build the sandcastle or how high or low on the beach you build it, nature wins eventually. The particular sandcastle I'm going to talk about in this episode is of course not actually a sandcastle, it's a coal tip. Digging up coal produces a lot of waste. Some of the waste is other material, like rock and soil, that's dug up in order to get to the coal. Some of the waste comes from the processing and filtration of the coal before it's shipped, so things like boiler ash. All of this needs to be put somewhere, so often there's a big pile or a series of piles near the mine, called a tip. In South Wales in the 1960s, there were around 500 of these coal tips. Seven of them were from the Merthyr Vale Colliery, right above the town of Aberfan. The first shaft of this mine was dug in 1869, and every decade or so they'd start a new tip, usually because the previous one had gotten too big. At first these were off to the side, but after World War I they started placing new piles directly uphill from the town. This caused all sorts of problems, because the hill, Minid Merthyr, was limestone and mudstone with lots of streams running down it. Local residents complained for years about the flooding, which was made worse over time, as coal gunk started blocking the drainage, 
and they started getting black, tarry floodwater coming down from the tips. In 1939, there was a tip slide at a nearby mine. 180,000 tonnes of waste slid about 400 metres. It buried large stretches of the nearby road, the railway and the canal, under between 20 and 25 feet of rubble. In 1944, part of Tip 4 at Merthyr Vale itself collapsed. It slid over 500 metres. And photos suggest that this wasn't even actually the first slide of that particular pile. Tip 5, replacing Tip 4, also began to slide after a couple of years. This was more of a slow-motion bulge downhill, and tipping stopped before there was a full collapse. Tip 6 was started in 1956, and Tip 7 in 1958 when it was discovered that Tip 6 was actually over the edge of a neighbouring farmer's land. In 1963, Tip 7 suffered from several small slips. Two of these were small because they involved small amounts of material. The third involved a lot of material, but it only slipped a short distance. In 1965, after an incident at yet another South Wales colliery, there was a memorandum set around regarding tip stability. The precautions in this memo included limiting the height of tips, uh, particularly where the tips were on hillsides above property, ensuring proper drainage above the tip so that water didn't flow down into its base, ensuring drainage below the tip so that if there was water it wouldn't pool, ensuring that tips didn't extend over springs or over boggy ground, and carefully managing the composition of tip material. This was pretty much a list of everything wrong with Tip 7 at Merthyr Vale. During early and mid-1966, Tip 7 started showing signs of slow creep. It was observed to be stretching downhill, and frequently when the workers came to the top, they would see that there were small depressions, that the top of the tip had dropped by four or five feet. So now we get to Friday, October 1, 1966. This was a misty morning. Residents down in the town looking up the hillside couldn't see the tip, and workers at the tip looking down couldn't see the town. So the gang of workers trudged up from the town, they arrived at Tip 7, and found that it had sunk 10 feet from the previous day. In fact, it had sunk so far that the rail track that they used to haul stuff up for tipping had fallen down into the depression. Now, it was a Friday, so the man normally in charge of the team was off making his weekly report down in the colliery, and wasn't there. One of the others, who happened to be the crane driver, took charge, and sent a messenger down to the team leader and to the unit engineer who sent a message back saying that they should stop tipping, and he'd check things out on Monday. The messenger came back up, along with the guy in charge of the team, where they found that while this had been going on, the depression had sunk another ten feet. At this point, the gang decided, very sensibly, it was time to retreat and have a cup of tea. Now, just in case I sound sarcastic here, I'm really not. Faced with work conditions that were starting to look a bit dodgy, the gang leader pulled his team back to think things over rather than pressing on with the work, and it saved their lives. One of the men hung back, 
and he directly witnessed as the depression suddenly started rising back up into a wave that rushed down the mountain. The material at the bottom of the dip had, over several years, become saturated with water. This was streams generally going down the hillside, but also they'd built the tip on top of a stream. At some point on October 21, part of the tip stopped behaving like a solid pile at all, and began moving instead like a dense liquid. So this movement released energy into the rest of the saturated material, helping it start to behave like a liquid too, until most of the tip is actually now just this moving liquid rather than a pile of soil. The upper part of the tip is still solid, but that gets carried along on the wave or just falls into the hole released by the flowing liquid. Meanwhile, this huge mass of mud spread out down the hillside. As water escaped from the mud, the mud re-solidified, leaving a uniform layer of solid soil. Before it got to that point, though, the wave of mud destroyed two farm cottages, 18 houses, a few other buildings, and Pantglass Junior School. 116 children and 28 adults were killed. Most of the child fatalities were students at the junior school, which was directly in the path of the slide, and had started lessons just beforehand. The secondary school was nearby, and it was just about to start. Staff there conducted a heroic evacuation amidst mud and swirling water from mains pipes broken by the landslide. The subsequent investigation was a classic case of the puzzlement that comes from hindsight evaluation of accidents. On the one hand, there was no smoking gun of evil. Lord Robins, the chair of the National Coal Board, took a lot of flack then and afterwards for not going immediately to the scene of the accident, and for making pretty misleading statements in the aftermath. In fact, some of the parents directly accused the National Coal Board of being responsible. But as the report says, quote, We reject out of hand observation that what has been revealed here is callous indifference by senior National Coal Board officials to the fears of a tip slide expressed to them. Callousness betokens villainy, and in truth there are no villains in this harrowing story. In one way it might be less alarming if there were, for villains are few and far between. End quote. On the other hand, the inquiry was bewildered that no one had recognised the danger beforehand, when it was so obvious afterwards. Quote, the stark truth is that the tragedy of Aberfan flowed from the fact that, notwithstanding the lessons of the recent past, not for one fleeting moment did many otherwise conscientious and able men turn their minds to the problem of tip stability. No intuitive flash jump in comprehension or leap in awareness was called for. These men were not thinking and working in a vacuum. All that was required of them was a sober and intelligent consideration of the established facts. When Mr Desmond Acker QC accused the National Coal Board of eight years of folly and neglect since Tip 7 was started in 1958, he used hard words. But we cannot conscientiously say they are unmerited. When one has regard to a... The accumulated knowledge of the capacity of tips to slide if badly cited or otherwise neglected, and b the vivid exemplification of this knowledge by comparatively recent events even in the southwestern district itself. 
The Aberfan disaster is a terrifying tale of bungling ineptitude by many men charged with tasks for which they were totally unfitted, of failure to heed clear warnings, and of total lack of direction from above. Not villains, but decent men, led astray by foolishness or by ignorance or by both in combination, are responsible for what happened at Aberfan. End quote. The report also, after hand-wringing about not wanting to blame men who were probably already blaming themselves more than was due, considered itself duty-bound to single out individuals and castigate them for their mistakes. For example, in talking about the mine manager, the report says, We think the truth is that, while Mr Wynne did not for a moment fear any slide reaching the village, he had either seen for himself or had had reported to him such matters as made him apprehend a degree of instability in the tip. He is not by any means the only official who failed to appreciate what stared him in the face. But as manager of the mine, he was directly and personally involved in responsibility, and the vigilance he should have displayed was correspondingly higher. To do nothing at all was, in all the circumstances, a blameworthy omission. End quote. Aberfan was one of the accidents that attracted the attention of Barry Turner when he developed his theory about disaster incubation. He considered that it was insufficient to say that people didn't know what they should have known or didn't do what they should have done. These are exactly the sorts of problems that require understanding and explaining if we're going to make the world safer. I still hear people today talk about how we don't need more research or academic study of safety. We already know what to do, we just don't do it, they say. But that's an inherent contradiction. Even if they're right that we know what to do, which is a pretty evidence-free claim in itself, we should always be sceptical about claims that other people aren't showing common sense. The more obvious it is that they should have done something differently, the bigger the mystery about why they didn't. If the collapse of Pit 7 was staring everyone in the face, then understanding why the colliery didn't stop tipping, why it wasn't obvious, gives us important insight into the organisational causes of accidents. Turner did this work 40 years ago, and his explanations weren't perfect, but they do give us a good starting point. People and organisations tend to form quite fixed ideas about what topics are relevant and important. When it comes to coal mine safety, tip instability wasn't on the top 10 list of things to worry about. As the Divisional Inspector of Mines said, while the coal industry has had a high accident rate, until this horrible disaster there's no previous case of loss of life due to tip instability known to the Inspectorate. The problem of tip stability has never been looked on as a safety problem meriting close inspection or recommendation by the Chief Inspectors. End quote. Likewise, when it comes to tip placement, Safety just wasn't on the list of immediate worries. The motivation for starting Tip 7 wasn't safety, it was that Tip 6 was encroaching on land owned by a neighbouring farmer. When Tip 7 was started, they were worried about mapping it out so that it could be sighted without risking tipping on other people's land. When they were preparing sighting plans, they were concerned about where the property lines were, where the tip would fit, and how they could run rails to remove the debris and tip it. Quote, three people went onto the mountainside to consider a new tipping site. 
Of these, Mr. Vivian Thomas played so subordinate a role in this matter that he must be absolved from the responsibility for the decision then made. The other two were jointly and severally quite unfitted by training to come to an unaided decision as to the suitability of the proposed site. To recapitulate, they had no ordnance survey map, they took no plan with them because none existed, they made no boreholes, they came to no conclusion regarding the limits of the tipping area, they consulted no one else, not even the colliery surveyor. They arranged for no drainage, for they considered none necessary. It was a case of the blind leading the blind. And, as Geoffrey Howe QC rightly added, in a system which had been inherited from the blind. In our judgment, such inspection as they made was worthless. They were unfitted by training to judge the matter, and what stared them in the face they ignored. End quote. Now, what I get out of that is that these weren't people making a carefully considered safety judgment and getting it wrong. These were people who didn't realise that they were making a safety-related decision. And this isn't the first time we've seen this on DisasterCast either. We've seen a chemical warehouse planned by an office manager who had no idea that certain chemicals should be kept away from other chemicals. We've seen a giant tank of molasses that no one inspected because the building regulations covered skyscrapers and bridges, not giant tanks. Sometimes people just start creating a massive structure without stopping to think that they're engaged in engineering works. You consider the safe design of a dam or a bridge, but you don't necessarily think about that when what you're building is a rubbish heap. There was a similar problem with the Texas A&M bonfire collapse, which killed 12 students and injured 27 others. Building the annual Aggie bonfires had evolved into a massive teamwork engineering task, but without the accompanying caution and control that would surround a similar commercial project. And yes, the same thing does happen with beach excavation. Not with sandcastles, actually, because it's hard to get them big enough, but certainly with holes on the beach. A 2007 study in the New England Journal of Medicine documented 31 deaths over 10 years from recreational dry sand hole collapses in the USA. So people just get started doing something for fun. It gets bigger and bigger, and suddenly it's actually massive enough to hurt someone. A final word on sandcastles. If you're really serious about building sandcastles, you want about 1% water by volume at the base of your sandcastle, and you want to gradually reduce the amount of water towards the top of higher structures, since extra water makes the sand stronger, but it also puts more weight onto the sand below. And if you're really, really serious, you should bring your own sand to the beach. What you do is you use the sharp sand that you get in rivers, compared to the round sand found on beaches that has flatter sides, letting the grains stick together better. Never let it be said that even the analogies on DisasterCast aren't properly researched. I've got a couple more things to share with you before I close out this episode. In episode 47, I said that I was reading a book called The Staircase by John Templer, and it deserves more than that passing mention. It's a 200-page book that focuses on a very specific hazard, people falling over on stairs. And in the process of looking at this one thing, it makes a lot of points with broad relevance for safety. Over the next few episodes, I'm going to come back to some of them. But first, here's a verbatim quote from the introduction. The stair is a delightful element of architectural theatre, 
but it also has another face. One that witnesses millions of injurious, crippling and often fatal accidents every year. This is a cruel face because much of the suffering is unnecessary. It reflects the ignorance, carelessness or indifference of the building industry, and ultimately our society. Stairs are known to be dangerous and potentially injurious, but little attention or research has been devoted to improving their safety record. It might be interesting to compare the magnitude of the financial resources expended on investigating the causes of injuries and deaths that occur as a result of air accidents, vehicle accidents and stair accidents every year. That automobile and air travel has become demonstrably safer over the years cannot be argued. That the stair has become safer as a result of similar endeavours cannot be argued, because no one has studied the question. It is as if society had invested in a dozen small studies of automobile safety over the past century, studies that were so small in scope as to be quite unrepresentative of traffic accidents, and were so underfunded that the results and recommendations were never evaluated. With this record of research, the automobile would still be the perilous machine it was at the turn of this century. The stair still is. I'll skip ahead a bit. Stair safety is a complex subject, encompassing many disciplines. We must consider the epidemiology of stair accidents, the biomechanics of human gait, reaction time and responses, work physiology and the energy demands in walking on stairs, etiology, the causes of accidents, kinematics, the influence of mass and force that occur during a fall, perceptual and cognitive aspects of behaviour on stairs, Traffic engineering and pedestrian flow and the capacity of stairs to cope with crowds. Materials engineering and the many facets of human factors engineering that relate to illumination, field and ground identification and accident reconstruction. End quote. Next time you see someone stick up a sign saying, what's your step? Or put a black mark next to non-slip hazard tape on an audit checklist? Email them a link to buy a copy of The Staircase on Amazon. It deserves to be a bestseller. Templer explains stair accident causation using a many factors model. It may be that a misstep occurs only once in every 2,000 odd stair uses, and a fall once in every 6,000 stair uses, with injury in every 700,000 stair uses. But people go up and down stairs a heck of a lot. Any factor that increases the chance of a misstep, or reduces the chance of recovery from a misstep, is going to make stairs more dangerous. Put a number of these factors together, and you have danger. Poor visual cues, unusual hurry, unexpected steps, protruding noses on steps, defects in the tread, and so forth, all contribute. You get enough of those, it doesn't necessarily cause the accident, it doesn't make it happen but it just raises the risk enough that eventually you have more accidents. Templar also has a bit of a safety two take on the whole using stairs thing, but I'd better save that to an episode devoted to safety two. Speaking of which, the very next episode of Disastercast is number 50. If you've been meaning to get round to subscribing or donating on Patreon, or writing a glowing review, now is the time. And as a birthday present from me to you, from now on, DisasterCast will be putting out items every single week. The main DisasterCast episodes will still be every fortnight, but there'll be shorter items on the alternate weeks. 
provided to start with by Ron Gant. I met Ron at a workshop we ran at Griffith. You may have noticed his excellent blog posts via LinkedIn or safetydifferently.com. If you've got something brief to say about safety yourself, I'll be accepting submissions. Thank you to everyone who's tweeted, reviewed, subscribed, or otherwise supported the show. A special thank you to premium subscribers Hunter, Patrick, and Daniel. Till next time, keep safe.